Welcome to the Mondo Neon Show. Argon, Neon, Helium, Xenon, Krypton. Transform and roll out. Hey everyone, Mondo listeners, it's Max here. I'm with Lily Lockage, an incredible artist, you know, long patron of Neon, has an incredible studio in LA, but welcome to being on the show. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you. It's wonderful to really sort of see somebody mature online. I mean, you've been doing this a lot longer than that, but you know, it's unmistakable your work, at least from what I've seen imagery wise, aesthetic wise. Um, talk about, you know, you, like I said, you've, you've developed a craft, but you've for a very long time, you've had kind of a storefront operation, but it's done many more things than that. It's not just a an art related space for people to go to and check out neon, but there's a lot happening. Um, go back as far as really you'd like in terms of what the neighborhood means to you, but maybe beyond that, how did you end up in LA and what was going on at that time? Well, I actually started in neon uh, while I was in art school in Brooklyn, New York, Pratt, Pratt Institute. And uh, it, it came about because I was uh, hating painting and printmaking and everything that they were teaching at Pratt except for drawing and I really just really only loved drawing and when I found out that neon was drawing with light I went to pursue it I went to a local sign company in Queens New York asked if they would teach me they said no you can't learn this but one man there uh, pulled me aside gave me a couple of scrap neon tubes a little white heart and the word chocolate a green green script chocolate made me a little diagram of how to wire it to a transformer told me I could go down to Canal Street and buy a transformer and so that's kind of how I got started I uh, started by incorporating those two little neon elements that I got into a larger sculpture with uh, plex and uh, and found objects in this, in in the sense, I mean, this is this is the seventies, is it or 80s? 90, 1966. So yeah, so this is weirdly a very different time for neon, but it's still at a point like what was New York's, you know, what was it like at that time? Was it had things been integrated in that way? Were I mean, clearly women were in the workshop, you know, neon in the sense that they were given, you know, those opportunities. But early on, I mean, this is an incredibly kind of a, a, a life-changing moment, right? Whereas an individual came up to you, I'm fascinated by, you know, those things because at any point in time, you know, you could have been looking elsewhere and here you are, you know, you now have the ability to sort of grasp what it's like to hook it up and understanding those intricate aspects of the craft. Was it, was it something that you continued on? You just kind of immediately knew this was where you wanted to go? Yes. Yes, it was absolutely what I what I uh, continued on with, and uh, I haven't uh, I haven't looked back. I I've not done anything else in terms of art. I mean, everything that I do incorporates neon. Uh, my work has uh, changed over the years. Uh, it started out uh, being much more graphic uh, oriented, pictorial drawings, and then um, I have. Uh, I guess evolved into more uh, abstracted imagery, but still figurative. And more recently, I've been incorporating more found objects into my work. 
Uh, I go to swap meets. I find um, interesting things and uh, I build uh, sculptures out of them. And it's such a, uh, an awesome journey. I mean, what was it like to go from sort of New York to LA? Was that an easy transition? Well, I left New York after I finished uh, art school uh, because I was attacked on the subway in New York. And uh, I just uh, thought time to get out of Dodge. <laughs> and uh, I initially went to San Francisco and I actually got a job in a sign company in, in Richmond, which is across, across the bay, and uh, found out that they don't really design neon signs in a sign company. What they do is they do a beautiful watercolor painting of the client's business. And in a few seconds, you put on some letters um, and that's the sign. So uh, that uh, didn't work out very well for me. And I also found San Francisco to be too uh, old fashioned, nothing mm -hmm. modern happening in San Francisco. And in fact, I just didn't have any ideas there. It was just too Victorian. It's too, uh, you know, just, just, just too old fashioned. And then I uh, came to Los Angeles in 1968 and uh, just loved, loved, loved Los Angeles, Lo loved the, uh, you know, lights, <laughs> neon, plastics, uh, and uh, I've been here ever since. So uh, I've been in L.A. since 1968. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on, especially when it, when people think of these sort of double moments, you know, in time. It's like I can imagine everything you took from New York really sort of opened it up and really explored a lot with. I mean, the 80s were an interesting time, especially with neon, I think. Um, I think neon was growing up, especially in the art world. I think it was being recognized more. I mean, you can argue that a few artists here and there, you know, Don Flavin and some of these other individuals that really, I mean, even though they sometimes they did or didn't work with light art, there was sort of an up, uh, an upbringing, I think. And I think sometimes it gets expressed differently and everyone has their own opinions on what they think is art, which is, which and which isn't, right? I mean, but there's no, no denying the, the ability for it to set a line and a color and really have it be a specific thing. I mean, it's really, even to this day, people know there's sort of no alternative and will argue that, Hey, this, this is neon or don't call this neon. And that's all great, but there's really something unique about um, the way that you explored it when it comes to not only the imagery, but the types of materials that you're using at a time, especially as you maybe came to LA, that was all the way in the seventies, but even the moments where you kind of combine metals um, and fabricated elements, I really yes. enjoy a lot of that. That to me is like such a, a breath of fresh air because, you know, so many people use neon, but they, you can express it in a lot of different ways. And I find that those unique elements, especially sculpture really utilizes it to its full extent. I mean, had you been exploring sculpture previously? Well, my, my work is uh, basically uh, what's uh, high uh, haute sculpture. It's uh, bas relief, I guess. It's uh, high bas relief. It's wall mounted for the most part and, uh, and kind of two dimensional rather than three dimensional sculpture. Mm -hmm. I like, for me personally too, I mean, there's a lot of history that goes into the work that you've done. I mean, you were incredibly influential 
Um, I love the drive-in piece that you created in the eighties, which was commissioned yes. by unity savings. I mean, I love that. I love the outdoor sculpture a lot because even though LA is a great place to walk around, not so much as accessible, say in New York, where you're uh, constantly walking around, but it's still one of those places that has a particular quality, especially the light um, and the way that things reflect. And, and I think that you're, you know, had you always, was it easy to get those pieces together? I mean, obviously there's, there's never really clear uh, direction to go in when it comes to some of those uh, larger projects, but you know, really large pieces and installation work. Um, what's the first step in that? Was it easy in the eighties? Like, did you go out there? Was it kind of, what was that? No, point? I mean, you, I mean, in order to do a large piece that's a commission, you have to first get the job. And in the case of uh, the unity savings piece drive-in, I was competing with another uh, neon artist and, uh, <laughs> and one, uh, one of the, vice presidents at the bank told me that uh, this other neon artist was asking $40,000 for the piece that he would make for the, for the bank. And so it was kind of some inside information. So I decided that since women were only making 59% of what men were making, I decided to take 59% of 40,000 and I came up with 23,500 and that's what I, uh, what I bid and I got the job. <laughs> and so I, I built, I built the sculpture. Um, and uh, Unity Savings uh, kind of went out of business and it was taken over by Pacific National Bank and they asked me to change the color of the car. They wanted me to paint the color of the car black. I said, no, I wouldn't paint it black, but I said I would paint it another color. So we settled on green. So I had to paint the car green in order for it to fit into their decor, which was wood and, uh, you know, just <laughs> plants. <laughs> so uh, they went out of business, too, and uh, gave it back to me. And so when I got it back, I repainted the car back to its original color, which was kind of uh, magenta. Mm, that's a great story. I mean, especially where it exists. I mean, I think a lot of those commercial entities, you know, you're kind of having to play by their rules as well. I think some artists kind of struggle with that. And it's neat to hear you talk about, I mean, even though it wasn't the original intention of the piece to be a specific color, you know, it's not trivial. It's like this was the, the original, you know, color that you intended it to be. And so it's fascinating and kind of an interesting place to work from as well. I think it challenged you a, a lot. You know, it seems like, you know, things that you come up against in those kind of group oriented projects you know you can't always have it your way right I mean I think that's all right which is a hard thing to swallow I think yeah especially if you're, if you're a true kind of a purist at heart um and then you served also um all, all that work that came together but you also wrote books as well you had a collection of, of work that you put out to in print form Yes. Right? I also created the Museum of Neon Art here in my studio in 1981. And uh, the Museum of Neon Art was here in my studio for the first 12 years of its existence. What I was the catalyst it. for that? Had you, had you had originally thought of a museum or how, I was curious. Well, yeah, I thought that I thought that my work would be nowhere in, you know, 50, 50 years if, uh, if there wasn't a museum. And uh, so I just decided that I would, 
I would start one. I went to a lawyer along with Richard Jenkins. Um, we went to a lawyer and uh, paid for him to set up the nonprofit um, incorporation for the museum. And uh, I donated uh, my studio space in downtown LA uh, to the museum for 12 years. Uh, so we had exhibitions here and in order for me to show the work of other artists, I had to uh, store a lot of my work. So uh, I had to uh, <laughs> lend it to friends and, uh, and you know, created uh, a space where other artists could show their work. So that's we an had, incredible uh, story, by the way. I mean, so you're kind of visibly working out of a space which is technically your own and then you yes. know, giving it over to other artists. It's kind of right. like the ultimate gift in a way. And then you're moving your work outside of that. I mean, it seems, it sounds chaotic, but were, what was that? Were, were you obviously kind of intentionally trying to figure things out along the way? Because that sounds pretty difficult. And I'm sure, you know, people don't know the whole story about that as well. Right. There's a very long, long story. Uh, I was uh, sort of the founding director of the museum and I uh, stayed with the museum for 18 years until uh, there was a dispute. This uh, very famous architect, architecture critic, uh, Ada Louise Huxtable photographed my uh, Mona image, which was the logo image for the museum. She photographed it when the museum was up at City Walk and put it on the cover of her book called The Unreal America. It was a book about kind of theme parks. And at the time, uh, after the museum was um, in my studio for 12 years, it moved up to City Walk because of the uh, LA riot riots. Um, people stopped coming downtown and the museum was in dire straits of, uh, of having to close. And so we took this offer from uh, MCA Universal that was building, they were building City Walk at the time and they wanted to display the museum's collection of vintage neon signs on the outsides of the buildings up there. And so um, we were kind of desperate at that time and uh, agreed agreed to, to do that in, in exchange for the uh, museum's collection of vintage signs being up at City Walk that the, the, they offered to give the museum uh, a space uh, up at City Walk. And uh, they initially offered 3,500 square feet. Uh, they then reneged and, uh, and only gave us 1,000 square feet, 500 square feet of which had to be a store. And the store had to be open 364 days a year, 12 hours a day. So that was just uh, unsustainable. And in one, in one respect, you can't have a museum in 500 square feet. And uh, we did not have the money to pay staff to, uh, to take care of it for 364 days for 12 hours a day. And so after a couple of years, um, the uh, Community Redevelopment Agency in Los Angeles noticed that we had left downtown and said, well, where did they go? Why did they leave? And they offered the museum 7,500 square feet and architectural build out in, um, in uh, downtown LA at Hope and Olympic. And so the museum moved to Hope and Olympic for 10 years. And then that sort of deal ran out and the museum <laughs> went uh, 
went other places. But uh, this uh, issue with the architecture critic and the book cover, I had to defend my copyright and the Museum of Neon Art, the board didn't wanna, didn't wanna do the lawsuit and they didn't want me to do the lawsuit. They thought that she could turn around and, and uh, accuse them of malicious prosecution and the board would be liable. And so I had to do this copyright infringement lawsuit on my own. And I took it on. I, it took me six months to find a law firm that would take it on. And, uh, and finally, I, I found a law firm. Uh, and it went on for two years. And after two years, this was uh, 1997 to 1999, I settled for $40,000. The museum board turned around and wanted half the money, and I said, "Well, you didn't participate in the lawsuit, and uh, I'm taking my Mona image and I'm leaving." And so I quit in 1999, and I haven't been involved uh, with the museum since then. That's a ridiculous affair. I mean, you know, and it's 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 interesting how you were able to leverage. Obviously, you know, you knew something was wrong, and. The, even through the network of people that you knew, it's it's wild to think that they would be even, you know, trying to prove that they had some sort of stake in that. Um, and as much, you know, motivation as ambition you have, I mean, clearly there was a breaking point, right? So, yeah, you, think, you know, people don't realize that uh, the way the copyright uh, law reads is that if if you somebody infringes your copyright, it's incumbent upon you to have to defend it and if you don't defend it the infringer uh, can own it so I didn't really have a choice I mean that it it was uh, you know a signature image for me it was also the logo image for the Museum of Neon Art but the board of the museum at the time didn't seem to value it enough to uh, to go to court over it and so like I said I had to do the the lawsuit on my own and uh and that was the breaking point. And now it's also Mona Lisa too. Is that is that public domain or how does that work? Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, any the copyright law reads that uh, you can use uh, anything that existed, uh, well, it's 75 years after the death of the author. So Leonardo died like 500 years ago. And so... I could use it without any any problem <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because you know he died a long long time ago. There's a current case in uh, the Supreme Court right now where the Andy Warhol Foundation is suing to uh, to uh, prevent this photo photographer Lynn Goldsmith uh, to prevent her from having. Uh, the rights to her own photograph of Prince that was uh, used by Andy Warhol for his silk screens. And uh, Lynn Goldsmith was paid only $400 for her initial photograph of Prince and the Andy Warhol Foundation has made hundreds of millions of dollars off of the Andy Warhol Prince that, uh, that he made of Prince, <laughs> the Prince of Prince. Um, yeah. And... Uh, you know, and uh, she she sued in court. She lost in the first round, and she appealed and won on appeal. 
And then they, the Andy Warhol Foundation appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court just heard the case on October 12th of this year. So they're not gonna rule for uh, until the end of their, their term, which is October. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we talk about imagery no, and art. June, I guess you know. the end of their term is June, right? Or I guess I'm confused. But uh, they start in October, they end in June. Yes. So they won't That's... rule on that for a little while. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a culture shift. And, you know, especially for the museum, we know it continues to exist where it is. But a complicated matter, especially when it comes to, you know, your commercial, or, or I guess you say your reputation. Um, ultimately, you created the the museum and to my understanding there's no sort of real recognition of that either I don't know if that's just a group of people are making decisions and no one really sees the under understands the underlying truth um, but it can't be understated and I think it's worth mentioning and, and educating people on because um, yeah I mean there's there's an incredible partnership between you know you and the museum what you were able to do struggling to get it off the ground things like that um, but also, I think you, you've created a lot of opportunity for other future artists, too, not just with the museum, but you have these incredible workshops that you promote, um, you know, even for new artists. But now you have one for slightly more advanced artists who are interested in continuing on um, creating neon. What was kind of the, the mode for that? Did you have were you doing those continuously or had you had that idea prior to the museum? Not prior to the museum, but uh, I, I started teaching uh, in 1982, uh, actually, my uh, co-creator uh, of the museum, Richard Jenkins, started teaching uh, neon at uh, City College, and then he wanted to take the his neon class to UCLA, but he hadn't graduated from high school, <laughs> and uh, and UCLA said, "Well, we can't hire you because you don't have a degree." But the uh, person that was in charge of the program there at uh, UCLA knew me and said, well, if you can get Lily to team teach with you, we can hire you. So that's how I got involved in teaching Neon. I, I started teaching with him in order for him to teach uh, because I had the degrees and he didn't. And, uh, and so we taught started teaching through UCLA and then we said, well, why is UCLA making all the money? We then brought the uh, workshops uh, to the Museum of Neon Art. And, uh, and then when I left the Museum of Neon Art, I uh, started teaching workshops uh, through my own studio. And it's just so cool, you, you know, that bring that value across, not just for people who are obviously, you know, high paying members of a particular, uh, you know, college and, or university and people can argue that you know, almost a community itself, but, you know, obviously it's a very much a gated system, right? You don't have a particular background. You don't have that subset or you don't have that, you know, high school diploma. Well, then you can't walk through those doors. And so that's right. You know, it's a smart way, <laughs> you know, it's no secret that, you know, I think hustle is more important than just sort of, you know, whatever uh, particular paper you walk out with. I think it makes sense that you'd be willing to want to open your door up and, and really communicate those lines. A lot of neon shops have a difficult time knowing where to kind of spend their time now because you know clearly it hasn't always been uh, on the up and up and you know COVID did what it did but you know it's very hard for them to understand where they are what place they have now because of this business thesis of like I've got to make signs and I have to create as many O's as possible and do this work for these particular large groups or you know or I can't make ends meet it's just it's a failed work idea and I think it solely sits on the the, the thought that you know, you have to do a particular thing or 
focusing too hard on one area, you know, where it comes to a lot of different ideas. I think content can be created or, or ideas, you know, decisions can be made on multiple levels. You know, it's so I love your sort of ethos of like making a museum and then making a workshop and disproportionately divvying up, you know, different people and having a team and working alongside um, other people that, you know, that are consciously making good decisions, but have their, you know, that have their heart in it. Um, I yeah. think that's hard to really find, but as you're doing all that, but I think, you know, uh, has it been, it must be so great to see people come in and, and create things and um, almost. It's I'd amazing. Imagine, it's you know. amazing. Um, because I certainly didn't start out <laughs> uh, as complicated as, as what I'm able to teach people to do now. I mean, they, you know, they come into my studio and they see my work and of course they want to do something as, you know, as complicated as what I've done and, and they're able to, you know, we make, we make it happen. So, but uh, one of the disappointing aspects of it is that most people who take the workshop really only create one work uh, and they, they don't go on to, uh, to do more and more and more. A few do uh, and a few have uh, gone on to make careers uh, doing neon, but, uh, but most of the people that, uh, take my neon workshop really don't don't do more than the one piece that they that they make yeah I mean we can we can talk a lot more about that reasons why but I think it 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 likely comes down to obviously it's very time and you know obviously money sensitive so I think some things are some mediums are easier right like we talked about drawing we all love it because it's accessible it's like uh you know having a pencil and a piece of paper it's like you've got it right so I think there's a little bit of a barrier for entry but make no mistake, I think it's awesome that these people are almost purveyors of Neon, but now understand and can kind of educate the future on what's happening with Neon and whether it comes down to, hey, there's this thing that I made, but it also means that they can talk about you and the work that they've done and things like that. So it, it gives a great legacy, but also um, some leg as well. To, to Yeah, to, um, well, you know, LEDs now are taking over the sign industry. And one thing that the LED industry doesn't tell you is LEDs have a maximum lifespan of seven years. Whereas neon is almost <laughs> timeless, you know, can go on for 70 years. Um, and that's, uh, that's the difference. And that's kind of unfortunate when you uh, make something with LEDs, you can't just if, if part of it goes bad, you can't just replace part of it like you can a neon tube. Uh, you have to start over with a whole new system. And yeah. that's something that people, you know, people really don't know. And I think the public is catching on. I think, like I said, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to understand that there's obviously two different ways of, of communicating that message. You know, one, you can go out there and say, well, let's just front real neon, or you can just say what it is. You know, ultimately, I think it's important that people just participate in the conversation and and I think it's slowly coming to to fruition and you know will it ever reach the apexes that it has before I don't know but I know that it's here to stay you know that's the best part you know <laughs> it draws a lot of criticism it's difficult to work with it breaks and this that and the other yeah. um but that's always going to be the case and I almost would argue that that's the reason why it's still here you know it's so particular and it has such a you know a way of of, of being put together that there's really nothing close to it. And I think that's what sets it apart. You know, ultimately. I think so too. And it just makes you feel happy. Yeah, it's true. Um, where do you go from here? You know, I, you have a lot going on, any kind of upcoming projects. I know you've done a lot of different types of work. Is there anything that you're jazzed about? Well, 
I keep making uh, I keep making new work. Um, I'm, you know, right now my brother died a few months ago, and I'm doing a portrait, a neon portrait of him. So I I just I just think of <laughs> new things to to engage me. I'm in love with the medium. I've been in love with the medium for over five decades, and you know nothing nothing shakes it. Yeah. My heart goes out to you and your family, of course, with that loss. And, uh, you know, I think everyone on the community side, you know, will get a lot out of this. I think you've really touched on some key points, uh, especially in just career, but also artists in general. I think everyone can relate to that, um, story and, you know, it, it continues to keep blossoming as time goes on. So I really appreciate your time with us, Lily, and, uh, wishing you the best. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that show. If you haven't done so, please leave us a review on your podcast aggregator of choice. We have a lot of great neon guests coming up and as always, thanks for listening.